Um, text that I have here is from Romans 15.4. We're still looking at Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4 is the underlying um, passage of our church. It's a, it's, a, it's a passage that I looked at when we first established the church and it was a passage that just blesses us continually. And it's simply this. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. This morning has its focus on the source of our assurance. Um, and, and that is that it's the scriptures. It's the scriptures that bring you patience and comfort that you might have hope. Um, there's a reason the scriptures that do this. They, they are the infallible words of God. They are the infallible words of God. In other words, they, they come from his mouth. Um, they provide to us the comfort that we need and the patience we need to endure all the trials and the difficulties that we have in life. But also, they are the source of comfort that, we, that we're able to share to other people. Um, and that's one of the greatest blessings of the Word of God. We have an absolute assurance in the Scriptures, and that's what we're trusting in. We believe God. We believe God at His Word. We've got our trust in God. It's, it's not in man. Our faith, our hope, our trust isn't in man. It's in God. And He has spoken. He has given His words. And we believe that these words that we have in the Bible are true. We believe that they're infallible. Um, we believe that they can never be wrong. We believe we have them preserved. We believe that that which He inspired in the beginning... He has preserved through history, through the generations, and we have them in our own hands. So my consideration then that we have of this passage is, um, is, only, is only a few words that are found in the midst of it. We've, we've already done two sermons on this one verse. This is the third sermon. There is a fourth to come, and we'll close on that fourth, and it'll be on that final word, the word hope that we have there. But in this one, we find the words in the midst that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So in this, I see four things really clearly. I see, number one, the inclusive assurance that we, that we, those two words, an inclusive assurance. The means of assurance through the gain of assurance, patience and comfort, and the source of assurance, the Scriptures. So first, let's have a look at the, the inclusive assurance. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. This simple word that we, Paul writes with an inclusivity that can't be missed, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. There's a, there's a common reference that pertains to all of those who have been born again, to those that have been saved from their sin. There's this inclusion of experiences. It's an inclusion that we all have. We all experience that wonderful salvation that we've received from the Lord. This is something that we share in. The passage also speaks to the inclusion of a common hope and that's what I mentioned. Now, what I mentioned last week, you would have remembered that this isn't a hope so hope. This isn't a 
I hope I win the lottery hope. This is a hope that is certain. This is a hope that is the certain expectation of that which which we have not seen. And you can see that in Romans 8.24, in Hebrews 11.1, etc. This hope is common to all of those people who Paul is addressing in this letter. And that's those people that have trusted in Jesus, the people that have trusted in Christ. Now, it's important to understand that none of the letters that Paul had written in the New Testament were written for the world. It's not written for a lost world. It's written for those who have believed the gospel. It's written for those who know Christ. It's not written for the lost of of the world. The world can certainly glean some of the things that are in the scriptures, especially the gospel. With regards to the gospel, that's going to be clear in the word of God. But with regards to some of the other things, no, it's not, it doesn't pertain to them. They won't be able to uh, gain understanding from it. More specifically, it's not written for the world. The lost world, sadly, does not have the hope to look forward to apart from Christ. To the Thessalonians, Paul wrote this. He said, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. It's interesting from the text that there is one thing the world can be considered to have in common, and that is no hope. No hope. There's an inclusion that the world has that is completely opposite to that that we have, because our hope is in Christ. We hope in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're included in that hope, but the world is included in a state of hopelessness. They don't have such a hope to look forward to. They're trusting in men and man and they're not trusting in the Lord. They're holding their hope on the Lord. And, and sometimes we, we fail in this regard because we can actually move to that also. Speaking of the time when you and I once shared in the hopelessness of the world, Paul writes this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. He says, "...that at that time ye were without Christ..." being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Proverbs 14.32 says, The wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous hath hope in his death. Just, I mean, consider this for a second. Consider just that. The righteous has hope in his death. Now, we're not righteous because of any work that we've done. We know this. I mean, anybody who's, who's a Christian knows that there is, a, there, is an, there is an inability to do the good that you desire to do. We, we, we lack in that. We don't have the ability to do the things that we really want to do. But the key now has changed because those are the things that we really want to do. We are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and we share in His righteousness, not, not our own, not our own. And that's why we are righteous according to the Bible. If there's anything that the lost world currently have a share in, it is not only the sense of hopelessness, but truly the lack thereof, the lack thereof. This is why it's so important for them to see the hope that's in you. And this is something I'm going to be talking about next week, about the hope that's in you. 
And this is something that the world needs to be able to see it. Meanwhile, this text is for those who are Christ, those who belong to the Lord. Christians around the world have a common source of assurance. Paul here speaks to the inclusive assurance. We we share in a common saviour. We share in a common salvation. There's, um, There's words in the Bible. There's words in the Bible that only pertain to those who know Christ, those who are saved those who have been saved from their sin, those who have believed um, the gospel of Christ and have been saved, there's words that are only ours. They belong to us and us alone. They only ever refer to us. Words such as saints. Yes, I know, hard to believe it. But according to the Bible, those who have believed the gospel and are born again are known as saints. Elect, chosen, brethren. The phrase the sons of God in the New Testament only pertains to Christians. And you'll see that in Romans 8, 14, 19, Philippians 2, 15, 1 John 3, 1 and 2. The word together, incredible in Paul's epistles, in all of Paul's letters. The words together, the word together refers specifically to Christians. The two times that it doesn't refer to Christians, it refers to a fallen world, demonstrating even their distinct inclusivity. There are two people here that it refers to, and those that are born again and those that are not. Comforted together, Romans 1.12. Planted together, Romans 6.5. Glorified together. Joined together. Laborers together. Gathered together. Come together. Come together. Come together come together six times the words come together from 1 Corinthians 11:17 to 1 Corinthians 14:26 is found referring to specifically those who are in Christ helping together working together quickened us together raised us up together fitly framed together builded together striving together knit together and finally caught up together incredible phrases and they only refer to those who know christ those who are born again that's part of that wonderful hope that we find within the source of our assurance which is the scriptures but there's one more word there's one more word in the bible that is applicable to christians and to christians alone it's a word that would otherwise be indistinguishable if it were not for its inclusive use in the English of the King James translation. And it is consistently profound. It's the word charity. The word charity. The Greek word for love, interestingly, historically, was only ever translated as charity by John Wycliffe in his translation of the Bible into English in 1395. Then it disappeared completely in Tyndale's translation. It crept back in again in the Bishop's Bible in 1568. But it came full force in the King James translation on 28 very peculiar occurrences. But it's now no longer found in modern translations in those areas. Charity in each of those 28 occurrences is peculiar to the love that is shared between those with this inclusive assurance, this this inclusive hope that we have, that we are saved. It's interesting 
It's interesting how that happens. It's interesting how there's a common sort of love that we actually see with, with those who know Christ. And in 2012, my family and I had gone to Israel and we had met uh, probably about another 20-odd people. For the first time uh, in Israel, we were all you know, on the same journey and we are all on the same tour. And we all shared this little bus. And I've got a photograph of us parked in amongst all these gigantic buses um, in certain areas. Well, our little bus is just sort of parked in there. And, um, and it was interesting listening to the tour guide who was a little bit frustrated because he somehow felt a little bit left out. He was a Christian man, um, but he felt a little bit on the outside. And he said to me, you know, I feel a little bit left out because, I mean, you guys have obviously known each other for a long, long time, you know. Um, and he saw that evident because we seem to have a common love, charity, a charity, a love for the brethren. And, um, and I said to him, oh, mate, no, other than the tour leader, who is, uh, who is the gentleman that actually took us on the trip, um, we've all met each other for the first time here. And he said, what, how is it that you all get along the way you do? And I said, well, we all have a common source of hope. And that common source of hope is the Bible. We're all singing out of the same hymn book. And, uh, and that's the wonderful joy that we have. This is the incredible thing. You see, no matter where you might go in the land, no matter where you might go in the world, wherever you go, if you find Christians that share in their love for the word of God, there is a common love between brethren. And it's just such a wonderful blessing to see. So that is what we find as an inclusion, this inclusion of assurance. And it's included among those who know Christ. The second one is the means of assurance, the means of assurance. The text says that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Here we have the means at which we can have that wonderful assurance. The text points us to the means by the arrow of a single word. And that is the word through, the word through. And what a word it is. You know, it's placed in a context such as this. It's a simple proposition or preposition. It's nothing more than that. It's a preposition that demonstrates a means by which one might move from one thing to another. Okay, it's a, from one state to another state. It, it's, it's referred to in, in dictionaries as a function word. It's a function word. And it shows the means with which the change occurs. The text says that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You see, without this incredible word, we wouldn't have a proper description of the scriptures as a means of patience and comfort that culminates in hope. It's through patience and comfort of the scriptures that we have hope. In other words, the word through in this context reveals the agency through which we have hope, and that is the Scriptures. It's the source of assurance. Some practical examples. You can fail at something through ignorance. Okay, You can fail at something through ignorance. You can be related to someone through a grandparent. You can get to the other side of a mountain through a tunnel. Does that make sense? So you have this, this, this word that points to the gateway. It's the arrow 
that marks the way. When it comes to the hope that we have of eternal life, the Bible says this, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, Ephesians 2.8. Colossians confirms the same function, saying this, In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, in Colossians 1.14. Paul in Romans 3.25, he joins the value of these two things together and speaking of Jesus, he says, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. We've also got negative ends, negative ends in which the function word through identifies the means. Proverbs 10.4 says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. Or Ecclesiastes 10.18, By much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of the hands the house droppeth through. And here we see this negative connotation. We see evident that there is a means that determine the ends and not the way around. You got that? It's the means that determines the ends and not the other way around. That's something worth explaining. In that above example that I gave you, um, we see the means. Faith is a good thing. Faith is a good thing and it leads therein to eternal life. It's another good thing. But by contrast, we also see that slothfulness or idleness, both of them are a bad thing and they lead to the decayed house. Okay, another bad thing. We also see that the wicked, through pride, another bad thing, leads to them not seeking after God. God is not in all his thoughts, yet another bad thing. The means determine the ends. So the means man employs determines the end. One leads naturally to the other. It's, it's like one just leads naturally. It's, it's like the, the, the source of a fountain. If the waters are fresh that there's the source of the fountain, so will that that comes out of the fountain be fresh water. If the waters are bitter, then if that's the source, then that which comes out of the fountain will also be bitter. Again, this all makes sense. What we see here is that the means determine the ends. This is vitally important, vitally important for us to remember because we've been sold a bill of goods in this world that is completely false and that is the idea that the ends justify the means there's no such thing in the bible that presents this this has been an idea that has come up through history and has been promoted by wicked and evil people they believe that the ends justify the means now no one knows exactly where this phrase originated Um, some people think that it was Ovid a Roman poet in the first century some people think it was Machiavelli in, uh, in his book, The Prince, in the 15th century. Um, others think that it was Karl Marx in the 19th century. We don't know who originated the concept, but we certainly do know that it's been promoted by evil regimes around the world for well over a 100 years. We see it recorded with Leon Trotsky and Joseph Stalin and running all the way through to today's left-wing political ideologies. The ends justify the means they say 
and the belief in this in this in this vile and and often used ideology is, is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. I mean, in their in their mind, they think that that if in their own imagination they think that the end is good, whatever that end is in their mind justifies everything that goes before it in order to get to that good end. They think that if the end is good, then the means must by 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 natural implication also be good. So they justify all forms of immorality, lies, deception and everything else in order to get to that end which they think is good. Because they believe the end is good, therefore whatever the means are to get there, that also must be good. But this is completely contradictory to the scriptures. Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda head of the Nazi war machine in World War II, has attributed to him the title um, The Big Lie, which is followed by authoritarian governments up until this day. And it's used as a means to an end. Okay, The end is good and the means are there and they're justified by that end. And he uses lies and deception as a means to that end. Let me, say, let me tell you what he, what he said. If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, people will eventually come to believe it. The lie can be maintained only for such time as the state can shield the people from the political, economic or military consequences of the lie. It thus becomes vitally important for the state to use all of its powers to repress dissent. For the truth is the mortal enemy of the lie. And thus, by extension, the truth is the greatest enemy of the state. It's quite revealing, isn't it? What an incredible quote. The ends justify the means. If the dreams of a communist or socialist totalitarian state was seen as good by Marx and Lenin and Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot or Hitler, then the degeneration, starvation, execution of 300 million people over the last 150 years must also be, by default, morally good because the ends justify the means. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not the end that justifies the means but the means that determine the end. It's through a way or an act that the end comes, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. If our desire is for that hope, then that is, comes through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures. That is the means. That is the means. That is our source of assurance towards that end that is hope that we're looking forward to. The gain of assurance, the third point this morning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. This is a fascinating, um, fascinating way this verse is presented to us in the passage. You know, On the one hand, we're looking forward to the end, which is hope, Okay, which is really interesting. We're looking forward to this end, which is hope. But there's something very unique about this. Because it also, it also provides not only for an end goal, but it also provides for the journey. It provides for the journey. I mean, 
when you're looking forward to going on a on a on a on a trip on a holiday, right? You might be able to, in, in a way, sustain yourself to a certain degree in order to, you know, because you're looking forward to that end, which is that, that holiday. But in the meantime, everything can, can run amok, you know, and you don't necessarily have that wonderful patience and the comfort. But if you're looking forward to that end, that's the only thing that you're looking forward to. Here, it says that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. In other words, it's through the Scriptures that right now we can have all the patience all the comfort, all the joy that we're looking forward to at that end. But even now we can have that peace. There is a gain in our assurance and that it's not something that we merely look for at the end. The gain remains with us as part of the journey. It remains with us as part of the journey. Patience and comfort. It's not possible to limit the ways that the scriptures actually um, provide for our patience and comfort. I can't, I can't go through all of it. I'd be here, well, I'd have to be reading the entire Bible to be able to provide for you those different things. But when we read in God's word the evidence of the many ways in which we can actually have comfort and, 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 uh, and patience, we discover something really interesting, and that is that um, it can come through some surprising ways. We discover that we can be comforted in tribulations. We can be comforted in tribulations. Romans 5, 3-5 says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Knowing the tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. It's vital to know about, because we all go through tribulations in life. Jesus said that this would be the case. Uh, yet, he also said that in those tribulations we can have peace. He writes, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You see, the scriptures tell us the things that we need to know. The Bible tells us the things that we need to know. We endure with patience the things that are set before us because we are included in that which the Lord Jesus Christ has overcome. Without the Bible, we wouldn't know the simplicity of that passage in John sixteen thirty three. I wonder if you'd ever thought about um, the peace that David had, the comfort that David had when he could write, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm thirty-four nineteen, Or when he writes about the power of God and he says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. In Psalm 33, 6-9. It's any wonder that knowing the power of God and the might of God and his faithfulness to the righteous, that he also refers to the Lord in this way. He says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation. And my high tower, I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from mine enemies. In Psalm eighteen one to three, you see, it's it's when we read it's when we read the scriptures, it's when we 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 read the Bible that that all that hope comes. It's the source. It's the source of our patience and our comfort. 
And we can have that patience and comfort no matter what we're going through in life. And it's all found within that book. And when we set that aside, we, we, just, we just fail. We fail to, to enjoy the wonderful peace and the wonderful joy and the, and the comfort that actually comes. Comfort that he's, he's set for us. He's given it to us that we might be able to be blessed. But then when we, when we walk by it, when we don't pick it up, or we turn to other things, it doesn't give the comfort. It doesn't give anything that's long-lasting. It doesn't give us anything that, that helps us endure. And more importantly, it, it doesn't demonstrate within us anything that we might be able to demonstrate to others. That they could see the hope that we have. You know? And it's a real struggle. David speaks about a lifetime of witness of the Lord bringing this patience and comfort. He says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or his, nor his seed begging bread. In Psalm 37, 25. It's a beautiful book, this book. And that's only a few verses. You know, that's only a few verses, a handful of verses. We've got a handful of verses here and those are enough to bring us comfort and joy. If we remember and memorize those verses, we can have comfort and joy. Well, what are we to say of the rest of the volume of this book? You know, the Bible is 72 hours long if you can read it at the normal pace of speech. That's all it is. 72 long, 72 hours long. At an hour a day, you can read this book from cover to cover four times a year and still have a day off each week. You know? You've still got change. How many of you have even read it through once? Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. You're anxious. And you're frustrated and the world is getting darker and your mood follows suit. You know of the Bible, but you rarely read it. You know about prayer, but you rarely bend your knee. You look for purpose to distract you, so you turn to your work to satisfy, but it doesn't. You begin new projects and new hobbies in the hope that it redeems time well, but it doesn't. You hope in a relationship or relationships, but they don't satisfy. You turn to entertainments and to games and to social media, to television, to programs on YouTube, on Apple TV, on Disney, on Amazon Prime, on Netflix, on Stan and the plethora of other mind-numbing placebos in the hope that something might help. But they don't. The Bible's still there as you walk by. The couch that you once knelt beside to pray is also still there. But sport is on the TV. It doesn't matter that there's no crowds and it doesn't matter that the car racing itself is not real. It doesn't matter that the cheering is synthesized. Something is bound to bring the comfort, and that's what you're looking for. The Bible hasn't moved from where you left it, and you walk by again. Tell me how you gain assurance of anything good when you ignore the infinite source of everything good. A source of assurance. Last point this morning. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. The source of our assurance is the Bible. It's the source for the reasons I mentioned above. And I've repeated before the quote of John Bunyan, who was asked of the reason for his trust in the Bible. And his response is as simple as it was profound. I trust the Bible because it was written by him that cannot lie, said Bunyan. 
And there's more to learn that gives patience and comfort for the hope that we have, um, just as the Psalms provide us. What we see within the scriptures are the accounts of those who sought for much peace and much purpose, who found no value in anything but the scriptures of hope, even the vanity of life that Solomon spoke of. So we find within the text of the scriptures, the historical accounts of people's own personal experiences, looking for the things that they were looking for, setting aside the scriptures of hope and the hope of the Lord. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 3. He begins this um, 12 chapter experimental testimony of trial and error. And that's what this is. The book of Ecclesiastes is a 12-chapter trial and error testimony of King Solomon, what he experienced. He was the wisest of all kings, the riches of all, richest of all kings, both past, present, and future. And he is here searching for peace, for comfort, for assurance, for meaning, apart from the Lord and without his words. Remember what Solomon had. He had the Psalms of his father, David. He had them. He had his father's psalms. He wasn't without them. Those words that you and I just read that we can receive a tremendous amount of comfort from, Solomon would have had access perhaps to the originals written by his father. Why wouldn't he have? Perhaps he saw them laying there as he walked by. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. Ecclesiastes 2, 4 to 5. Well, it seems he too turned to his work to keep himself occupied. Hmm. Perhaps that would help, he thinks, as he walks past the book of the law and the small book of Psalms sitting there. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bring forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. Ecclesiastes 2, verses 6 to 8. Yes, a pursuit of leisure and wealth is more than enough to distract a man or a woman from this present trials of life. No time that... uh, uh, to think of, of, of the things that are of this world, no time to think about others, no time to think about anybody else or whatever other people are suffering with. It's self, self, self. It's all you've got time for. You ignore the darkness that way, and this is the way to do it. Prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto me smooth things. Yes, it's like that. Hear no evil, see no evil, see nothing to knock me into reality. Let's get distracted by building myself good things and enjoying the treasures and the riches of this world. I get me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy for my heart rejoiced in all my labor and this was my portion of all my labor. It seems, you know, games and Netflix and sports and social media have an ancient equivalent. 
able to distract a man just as easily as today, but never able to give the gain and the patience of comfort of the scriptures. How many times had Solomon walked by the room in which he prayed? How many times did he see his father's psalms in the corner of his eye? He found ways to be able to do all these things. He found ways to distract himself by entertaining himself. And it's no different to what we do today. It's exactly the same. Did he find the comfort? Did he find the peace that passes all understanding in them? Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I had laboured to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. The end of all our efforts to seek an alternative, a simple source of all our assurance is vanity. Solomon goes on for another 10 chapters telling about the vanity of life in all its vain attempts at finding purpose and meaning apart from God and apart from his word. And he concludes the account in the final passage of the book, the last few verses of the 12th chapter of the book. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 and 14, the last two verses. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. These are the things that we see experienced. But I don't want to stop there. There's there's more than enough there to convince us in Solomon's own writing that looking for any other source other than that which is found in the scriptures and of God is more than enough to satisfy our needs. But now I want to bring to you also part of the scriptures to provide a historical account of that which can be also our own ruin when we find and look for that which we would otherwise think would bless us. And this account is found of King Ahaz and it's in Second Chronicles chapter 28. It's worth turning there. Second Chronicles chapter 28. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 23. Six verses there. Second Chronicles chapter 28, 18 to 23. Here we're going to be learning of the historical, historical nature of our topic. King Ahaz looked elsewhere for the source of his assurance, no longer to the, to the word of God, no longer to the God of the word, but he looked to other sources that rather than uh, becoming its, his benefactors, they actually became his curse. Have a look in Second Chronicles 28.18. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And Tilgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes, and gave it unto the king of Assyria. But he helped him not. And in the time of his distress, he did, he, did he trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that king Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, therefore will I sacrifice to them, that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him, and of all Israel. This is the picture of a multitude of people in the world today. People who will look everywhere but the Bible for their help and their assurance. Rather than deliver them, rather than deliver them, they become their ruin. The inconsistent 
vanity of those who claim that they don't believe in God because their heart refuses to see the evidence of him, they turn themselves then to charms and to, and to breathing exercises and to, and, to, and to chanting and even to the wind and they write little notes on bits of cloth and they hang it up and that they let the wind blow it in the hope that somehow their prayer might come back to them. I mean, these things, they, 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 they look to the stars, they look to the earth, they look to a tree, they fall down and worship a block of wood. And in the case of the United Nations, a monolith of stone, they pray there. They take comfort or warning in dreams, in cloud formations, in the leaves of a teacup, in the shape that coffee stains make when the cup is turned upside down. They consider the hand and the traverse of lines designed by God to fold according to his unique imprint on the individual. They think that they can tell a future or find a comfort in that. What they don't do is consider. They don't take time to think it through because God has hardened their hearts. He's handed them over to their own vanity. They never see how few of their interpretations of these things ever come true, ever come to pass. It's like the gambler who sinks money each week into lottery, playing the same numbers again and again and again and again. And the moment he wins back one week's worth of, 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 of money that he's invested, his contribution there is enough to motivate him to keep sinking his income into that endeavour week after week. That's what they do. It's funny, each time I walk past the Tatsalotto office, I smile because I see people all there in a the line. They're all lining up and... And I look at them and I think to myself, oh, they're all lining up to pay their taxes. They're all lining up to pay their taxes. Because I can't help considering Tatsalotto nothing more than a tax on people who can't do math. Sorry if that's offended you. Well, not really. Because that's all it is. It's a gambling addiction that puts people, just consumes your wealth, your turning to a source of comfort that is vanity. Money is not going to bring you comfort. <laughs> it's not going to bring you comfort. So those, they, they look to their dreams and, they, and what they're doing is looking at vanity. Those who look to the earth rather than its maker look to vanity. Those who look to the stars and not the creator of the stars, they, they look to vanity. They look to nothing more than the chasing after the wind and it will be the ruin of them. Isaiah wrote of the vanity of Judah who were doing just this 700 years before Christ. He says, Stand now with thine enchantments and with a multitude of thy sorceries wherein thou hast laboured from thy youth. If so be, thou shalt be able to profit. If so be, thou mayest prevail. Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. In the 44th chapter, Isaiah wrote of the man who plants a tree and he waters the tree. And he sees it grow and he cuts it down and then he burns part of it to warm himself and, and he, he also burns a part of it to be able to cook food on it. You know? And then the residue of it, the bit that's left over, that can't be used for anything of any value to him, that he carves into an image. He makes an image out of it. He makes a little god out of it, out of his own hands and he falls down and he worships it. And God describes it this way. And the residue thereof he maketh a god, even his graven image. He falleth down unto it and worshippeth it and prayeth unto it and saith, Deliver me, for thou art my God. They have not considered nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see. 
and their hearts that they cannot understand. And none considereth in his heart, neither is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned a part of it in the fire. Yea, also, I have baked bread upon the coals thereof. I have roasted flesh and eaten it. And shall I make the residue thereof an abomination? Shall I fall down to the stock of a tree? He feedeth on ashes. A deceived heart hath turned him aside, that he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Isaiah 44, 17-20 The world has turned to vanity, insurance of nothing other than their own imagination. But you and I have the Bible. We've got the Word of God. We have the source of all our assurance. We have it in our lap. We live in a prosperous nation. We live in a nation that has been able to provide for us the wonderful joy and the freedom to be able to open that book. Do it while you still can. Open the book. Read it. Find the source of your assurance in the scriptures. Memorize large tracts of passages because they speak of the hope that is yet to come. But in the meantime, you provide for yourself comfort and patience of the scriptures. A comfort that is sure and a hope that is steadfast and everlasting. Open its pages. Turn to it and gain the assurance promised you by the author of life. Until he returns. Maranatha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Again, dear Lord, we see the word of the Lord doing a work within our lives. We know, dear Father, it's gain. We know, dear Lord, it's blessing. We know, dear Lord, that in every way it can provide for us the things that we so desire and so need. I ask and pray, dear Father, you continue to go before us. Strengthen us in our faith and help us, dear Lord, that we might glorify your name. Let us look to the word of God, the comfort, dear Father, the patience and comfort that we find in the scriptures, that we might continue to have hope. It is indeed the source of our assurance. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.